All right. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm Rick Donlin. Um, I've, we're going to get started. Um, this is a talk about what we call in, in my community where I live in Memphis, Tennessee, incarnational living. And so that's, uh, I'm not sure who coined that term. It might have been John Perkins or somebody. But uh, it's predicated on understanding the, the notion of the incarnation. So I want to start by, because this is a personal story to some degree, to be honest with you, I'm going to try to take more of an abstract view, but I want to start by telling you my own family story. I'm just describing this. This isn't prescriptive, but descriptive. There's lots of ways to live cross-culturally. It happens that I live in a poor, um, mostly African-American southern city, and so cross-cultural living for a, a white middle-class doctor guy is to live in that culture. But in some parts of our country, it's different cultural groups. There may be other people that you're, you're seeking to make connections with and live in a way that's different than you. But by definition, cross-cultural means you live among people who have a different way of viewing the world and thinking about truth and life and understanding the, the way the world works. So, yeah. So I have, a, um, I have kind of a cross-cultural family, although we, we forced these two Chinese girls into our family. They, they were very young when they were adopted. But, um, yeah. Oldest is 25, youngest is 9. And I don't recommend you do it that way if you're... <laughs> but um, actually, they're great. And we moved into an inner city community called Binghampton, and I think in 2003, so about 16 years ago. And my, uh, we had five kids at that time, but only the two oldest were, I think they were like 9 and 7. So the others don't remember it. And they're all kind of older now. Memphis is a city that is... Racially divided. So this is a picture. Some of you, this is an iconic picture. Some of you know. This is April 4, 1968. There's a U2 song called Pride in the Name of Love where Bono belts out early morning, April 4. A shot rings out in a Memphis sky. Except it was about 5.30 in the afternoon. Dr. King and some of his other leaders were on the balcony of a Negroes-only hotel called the Lorraine Motel. And uh, a gunman from across the street in a building opened up a window and with a high-powered white rifle and a single shot, put a shot through Dr. King's jaw and neck and killed him. He lived uh, long enough to get to the hospital, St. Joseph's Hospital in Memphis, but he died. And that night in Memphis and across the United States, there, yes, ma'am. Do you want me to use the mic? Well, I, I just... The, the recording... This, this is here, sorry. Is it on? Yeah, okay. well, I, I hope it is. If not, I'm mad at him for making me wear this thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Dr. King is still dead. Um, riots across the country. And we had our 51st uh, celebration of that this year in April, 50th anniversary last year. It's still the defining the defining moment in the history of Memphis. Like, you don't have to go very far at all beneath the surface in our city to see racial enmity and that is literally centuries old and is hard and difficult. And um, it's, it's two cultures that, are, that have lived together for a long time and have made accommodations to each other and the honest truth is have real trouble liking each other. That's a pleasant way to put it. All right, um, I got to Memphis because I made a blood pact with uh, three of my medical school classmates in New Orleans where I grew up and where I went to medical school that when we finished medical school, we were going to be Jesus doctors, and it ended up that we did that in, in the inner city in Memphis. This is how we got started 20-plus years ago. There are other people in the room who have been part of this movement, but we planted uh, health centers in the city. This is a useful picture. This is a guy named Eric Fisher. If you want to know what your city looks like, if your city is one of the 200 largest cities in America, Eric Fisher's got a map of your city, too. And Eric Fisher does racial demographics. Every dot is 50 people. Blue dots are 50 black people. Red dots are 50 white people. Yellow dots are Latinos. We have some uh, small population. I joke that there's probably more Asians in this room than there are in Memphis most times, so we don't have a bunch of Asian dots. But it's a racially polarized city. And where you see blue, all of the things that um, you've learned, if you've learned anything about healthcare disparities, are heightened, as are um, poor educational attainment and crime differences 
In reality, there are enough physicians, healthcare providers for all of Shelby County for Memphis, but they're not distributed across the county. So that we say where you see red, doctors compete with doctors to get patients, but where you see blue, patients compete with patients hoping to get doctors. Okay? So um, that's a different talk about healthcare injustice. But that's where we put those little crosses or where we put health centers. And we had a second iteration uh, where we did it a second time and we, we opened other health centers. And so we worked to create a network of primary care for the poor, which we did. Um, it's not perfect and it's not probably big enough, but it's a total of maybe 150,000 or more visits every year. And over the years, it's been millions of primary care visits. But we didn't move into the neighborhoods initially. We opened in 1995. And we did what you would expect. These are just some of our patients, just pictures to give you an idea of what we're up to. We always recruited students and residents. So some of these people are actually here at the conference uh, who, who spent time. We got guest houses in the communities where we eventually moved in and brought people. And you guys recognize somebody in there? Who's that? Yeah, he's a problematic person. He's a, no. Diego's great. Diego's here. I don't know why he's not at my talk, but it's okay. Because <laughs> he's heard it before. All right, but I'm going to take a step backward. About five years into this, I hit a brick wall. We had opened the second clinic, but the reason I was frustrated in considering a career change, that's how depressed I was, is because what I had hoped is that when we moved into this neighborhood that we picked out in south, southwest Memphis that was really medically underserved and we provided care, that we would knock out diabetes and hypertension in the first year or two, and that we would present the gospel to our neighbors, our new not really our neighbors, but the people in the neighborhood where we came to work, and they would embrace our version of Christianity, and by year three or four, they would put us on their shoulders and carry us out into the streets and name churches and other things after us, erect a statue. We would write books for you all to read about how we changed Memphis. None of that happened at all. Um, the radical transformation that had happened in my own life at age 17 when I became a Christian person, we weren't seeing that happen a lot. We would seem to create relationships cross-culturally, but for some reason they didn't seem to last. People wouldn't come to meetings. They, it, it was just frustrating. I was about to quit, and um, I met this guy who's going to do the closing plenary at this conference tomorrow, Charles Fielding. And he had just come back with his wife, who's Michelle. She's also here at the conference this weekend, from some very difficult times being Southern Baptist missionaries in a, in a Muslim country. And they had had a lot of hardships and a lot of difficulties, but they had seen a miraculous movement of the Holy Spirit. And they saw Muslims converting to Christianity initially in small numbers and then in really big numbers. And when they finally left, there were hundreds of Christian people who had previously been Muslims in the land that had known Muslim people before that. They moved back to Memphis because that's where he's from, and he went to med school at the, med the school in Memphis. And I hired him half-time to work in a health center with me in one of our neighborhoods and half-time to consult, like help us figure out how we can think through this. And one of the things that he said to us was, why don't you think about living in the communities? And he pointed out that he and his wife and the people in his team who had been involved in this movement in this Muslim country lived in the Muslim country. They could have lived elsewhere and tried to do it. And there are people from that Muslim country and other cities, but... He suggested some of us should think about it. And that wasn't an altogether unheard of thing. You've heard of people who do that before, and I had too. And there's a movement among Christian people in this country to do this sort of thing. We just hadn't had the courage to do it when we started. So whatever we're at now, six, seven years into this, we hire a couple of doctors to join us from, who are coming from Chicago. Not really from Chicago. Joe Weaver is from the um, place where Christian giants have walked the land in Pennsylvania. What's that county called? Where the Mennonites and the uh, Lancaster County. Yeah. If you ever meet him from there, just, oh. <laughs> Family um, rooted in that culture, had gone to Wheaton and some other things. Seema Weaver was Seema Daniel when we met her, uh, born in India but raised in the Maryland area. And the two of them are family doctors. And they met in Chicago at West Suburban Hospital in Chicago doing a fellowship, an extra year of family medicine training to do C-sections, to do surgical obstetrics. And they hadn't known each other till the fellowship, and they fell in love in that one-year fellowship, and they were looking for jobs. And I recruited SEMA, and we got the boyfriend along with them. 
And um, it was really one of the greatest things that happened to us. Because when they lived in West Suburban, Joe, while he was still single, with a few other Christian people, lived in the neighborhood around the hospital, which was kind of a sketchy, low-income neighborhood. And they'd had this Christian community there, and he really loved it. So they moved to Memphis, and he figured out what clinic he was going to work out in Memphis in the neighborhood of Binghampton, and he went and he bought a house on Hale Avenue, not knowing that next door was a smokehouse. You know what a smokehouse is? It's not where you get bacon and hams made, right? It's a place where you can go and smoke drugs, and there was also a side business of prostitution in the house. And they didn't know that. Um, I worked with Joe at the clinic, and he would tell me these amusing stories. To me, they were amusing stories. He would say, um, I couldn't figure out why all this traffic was coming by next door all the time, and then I, I think they might be selling drugs. That was, I think, you know, he's not a dumb guy. He's really a really super smart guy, but I don't think he knew exactly at first what was happening. And then he got to know the two guys who ran the smokehouse, Mose, and I can't remember for the life of me the other guy. I'm going to see Joe next month. I'll ask him. But one, one day their golden retrieve, uh, sorry, their golden lab got loose. Joe and Seema's dog got loose. And Mose went and tracked down Celia, the dog, and brought her back. And another day, after Seema had planted flowers in their yard, the other guy came out and complimented her on the flowers. And Joe told me, like, they're very nice crack dealers. They're very nice. <laughs> so I watched them, or as we say in Memphis, I studied them. I was studying them. And I thought to myself, like, they're going to wear out because... Um, I get to do this 40-hour-a-week thing, and it's kind of hard patient population. I, I mean, I like it, but I get to go home and relax and chill in the burbs. And they're going to live this urban lifestyle all the time. They're going to burn out. It's not what happened. They really seem to enjoy it and connect, and the patients like them. And so I started my quiet time to study that and to pray about that. And some other things were happening. I mentioned this guy, Chuck Charles Fielding, was in our midst, and so one day I went downstairs, and I did the most courageous thing I've ever done. And to those of you who've heard this story 20 times, I'm sorry. But I said to my wife, Laurie, Laurie, what's going to be for dinner tonight? You know, Laurie, what if we did what the Weavers did and we thought about moving into Binghamton? And Laurie said something like, what if you got a divorce lawyer? <laughs> Got a second row laugh guy. Makes all talks good when you get a second row laugh guy. So Nathan and his wife Kim were in the same process ahead of us by just shortly after. We moved in shortly after the Weavers did. Yeah. yeah. So in the South, and I'm spending too much time on the story because I want to move us forward. Uh, when you have an argument with your wife and you're Christian, you say that you're going to pray about it. Okay. <laughs> and so that's code for Rick, shut up. We're going to pray about it for six months. And, and in reality, she was going to reflect on the possibility because I was ready to do it, and she wasn't. And uh, everyone in this room understands that you don't drag a lagging spouse into something like that. Uh, that would be a really bad idea. Way before the six months came, she came to me, and she said, I'm willing to talk about this. So I was super thrilled. I'd already picked out a house for her and her children. <laughs> And we quickly, over, quickly is not true, over a year, we renovated the house. And um, this is actually a picture from earlier this year because we finally, after 16 years, repainted it a second time. And I don't know if you can see my daughter Helen in her Drew Brees jersey right there. So I hope, hope all of you have a Drew Brees jersey too. Um, Joe and others... We started to reach out to people in the neighborhood. We, he started a boys' club. We helped him start a boys' club. We started coaching sports. And then I started reaching into the medical and dental student community that I already had connection with because I was, I'd been there for a few years. And we started inviting people over to the house. And so this is a few years later. This is my porch. And there are people in the room here in this picture and at the conference. And... Students began to come, and before long, believe it or not, even though they're very busy, students and residents began to buy homes and move into this neighborhood also. And so what developed first in this neighborhood, Binghampton, and then in several other neighborhoods where we had health centers and other Christian people, 
is we had Christian communities of people living cross-culturally in these settings. Um, I know not everybody's a doctor in here, uh, not used to physical exams, but some of you can pick out my kid in that picture, I think, right? <laughs> chuckle, 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 chuckle. Right. Again, we don't have time to talk about it. This is maybe more controversial than where you live, how you educate your children, like what you do about educating children. Um, but this, this has been a large part of us connecting to our community. And I'm going to answer the question that some of you have already about how many of my kids are axe murderers later. All right. No time to talk about it. We started having church. We tried some different models. We've been having for 16, 17 years house churches at the maximum, 16 of them. It's less now, but um, still growing. We've got one now that's uh, Farsi-speaking, Dari-speaking for Afghans that just began. We have one that's Spanish language. We've got, um, yeah, we've got one that's committed to refugees only, and it's people who do that. So it's, it's been great and terrible. And this, as chaotic as it looks, is not a, even nearly as good a representation of how chaotic it actually could be. Great and terrible, house church. Okay, and out of this movement, and again, it's not, it's multiple families and multiple people, and people, not just medical people, but others, like we've created, we did create in Memphis a sending culture. And so all of these families lived in the inner city in Memphis, learned cross-cultural skills, paid off debt, and went overseas. And there are people who are not in this map who went for a term or two or less. So there's actually an even larger number of people who did this. Which is why, and this is uh, from one of the other fairly prominent sending agencies who's here, their candidate school uh, a week or two ago, and that's more Memphis people. Um, we make them represent the Grizzlies wherever they go. So, All right. Um, I sat down with my wife, Laurie, who 16 years later is way better at living cross-culturally than I am, and I talked to her. I was like, what would you say to this group if you were going to speak at the Global Mission Health Conference about incarnational living? And it, the yin and the yang of our marriage came out because she said, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go tell them how great it is and how you changed the world. And I would tell them how we failed completely and it stunk. And she didn't really mean it that bad. But the truth is both. Like, it's been great and terrible. It's been, um, there's been really amazing, great things that have happened and difficult things that have happened. And, again, we're just describing and then we're, we're about to now begin our formal argument why you should think about it. All right, so reason number one, you should consider cross-cultural living now. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is from the first chapter of John. This is about, the wor- in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Skip down, the word became flesh, and he pitched his tent among us. He, he dwelled among us. And so... The incarnation is the ultimate cross-cultural experience. Would you agree with that? We don't even understand the glory that the Son had with the Father before the creation of time. We don't understand the relationship of the Trinity. But when God becomes flesh, it's the ultimate cross-cultural move. And it's not, an, it's not a mistake or a coincidence that he did it as a poor, marginalized person. With basically unmerited unmarried, a situation where he could later be accused of coming from an unmarried parents in a backwater place among a marginalized people who are conquered by a powerful people. If you said to Jesus, this is the most ridiculous question you'll have today, if Jesus had to answer a patient satisfaction survey, hey Jesus, how was your incarnational experience on earth? How did that cross-cultural experience go for you? What would he say if he was honest? The human part of him. Yeah. What, what was bad about it? What's that? Well, okay, that was bad. That was, that was the final bad. What else happened before that? Yeah, people, he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. Right? Even his disciples, when he needed help, his hour of need... Could the three of you who are the least knuckleheaded please come with me and pray for an hour? Are you sleeping? His guy turned on him. His main guy denied him. His entire culture rejected him. Yes? Misunderstood, 
hated. They sought to trap him. He had a bad experience. He's not coming back to the ER. Or, you know, what, he's not, he, his patient satisfaction is poor. All right, but what would have happened if he had not been cross-cultural? We'll just leave that as a rhetorical question. All right, this is Rembrandt's version of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had multiple missionary journeys, at least three of which are recorded in the book of Acts. He is credited largely, him and others associated with him, with spreading Christianity from Jerusalem to the known Greco-Roman world in a, in a lifetime. Super cross-cultural, right? Jewish guy, um, where he left to himself would have stayed very tightly in a pharisaical culture, and he became all things to all men by his own report. Traveled, lived cross-culturally, spent time all over the place. Shipwrecks, jails. What about his patient satisfaction survey? How would it go? Read Second Corinthians. All right, but what would happen if there's no Paul? If there's no cross-cultural Paul? Do you know why God created whiskey? So the Irish wouldn't rule the world. (laughs) My name's O'Donnell. The story of St. Patrick, an English kid kidnapped by Irish pirates, forced to live basically as an indentured slave shepherd for a number of years before he has a quasi-miraculous conversion and escape. But he returns from England. He's English. He's not Irish. And he lives for decades among the Irish people, facing down the Irish gods, preaching the gospel, and has transformed Irish culture. But he got attacked. He was, his life was threatened multiple times. He had illnesses. He had to live, as I said, basically as a slave. What's his patient satisfaction score look like? It's not good. But if there's no Patrick, there's no C.S. Lewis. There's no Bono. There's no Jameson whiskey. Ah! <laughs> One bridge too far. All right. A couple more heroes, maybe three. William Carey. So I, I imagine there are people who don't know who William Carey is, but he's viewed as the father of modern Protestant missions. He, he was, in the late 1700s, was the first one to call out the church about our responsibility to take the gospel to the heathen. And he himself went to India and immersed himself in India for decades, absolutely immersed himself, learned the language, became a scholar, started the first degree award in university in India, is credited rightly with the revival of Bengali culture because he translated Indian works, created schools. His wife lost, literally lost her sanity and died there. He had, at one point, all of his translation works burned in a fire, and he had to go back and start from scratch. Satisfaction survey for William Carey? Pretty bad. But without William Carey, the most populous, or the second most populous nation in the world doesn't have the gospel. Or it comes some other way. Hudson Taylor, 40, 50 years later. China Inland Mission, or OMF, I'm sure OMF is here at the conference, got all kinds of pushback for actually getting so incarnational, so cross-cultural, that he dressed and spoke like a Chinese person, which his own culture thought was preposterous, because they were proud of their culture. Suffered terribly. Lost children. Um, sometimes he worked so hard that he literally uh, was bedridden for weeks at a time. But the work of Hudson Taylor, nearly any Christian in China now could trace backwards to the work of the China Inland Mission. So, again, not very pleasant, not helpful, but no Hudson Taylor, very different-looking China than now, where there are reportedly 100 million Christian people. All right. The lightest parts of this globe are where the gospel still hasn't really taken root, where the church isn't present in any significant numbers. And if it's going to happen, 
almost for sure people are going to have to leave one culture and go into that culture with the gospel. There are other ways, which we'll mention in a moment, but that's the main way it's going to happen. So reason number one, you should consider cross-cultural living now. It was the model used by Jesus, the apostles, and missionary heroes. Wait a minute, you might say. I'm not identifying myself as a missionary or a missionary to any particular sub-population or subculture. Okay, but remember what we heard last night. We don't live, we are from another kingdom. We're, we're, We're sojourners. We are aliens and strangers in this place. We're secret agent weirdos dropped behind enemy lines. We actually have more in common with the emerging Iranian church. Did you know the fastest growing part of the world, where the church is growing fastest in the world, is Iran? Iran is an enemy of ours, if you look at the newspapers. I have more in common with my new brother in Iran than I do with Americans who aren't Christian people, if I'm really a citizen of the kingdom, first. Okay, I want to tell you about a patient, Mama Dot. This is not actually Mama Dot. Mama Dot had diabetes and hypertension. She was late 70s, and she had bad cataracts, and she wanted to get her cataracts fixed, and it took us a long time to get her diabetes and hypertension controlled well enough, but she finally one day went and had cataract surgery. And she came back, and she was sad. And I thought, what a fine doctor I am. You know, I've gotten this lady all fixed up so she can have surgery, and now she's unhappy. And I asked her, why, Mama Dot, are you unhappy? And she said, because now I can see how wrinkled and old I am. It was sad. I wonder what that has to do with living cross-culturally. Can you see the pictures? So, 2003, we move in. Again, there are other people in this room who have done the same thing. They'll have different experiences. But pretty quickly, like, stuff started to bug me. Okay, like, ring, ring, my doorbell being rung when I'm not used to it. Like, hey, can we play basketball? Like, I bought a goal in order to reach out to my neighbors. But they would come at inconvenient times. Sometimes they would leave my water hose on and drench my yard. And at one point, they got scared because the basketball went in the backyard. And they were scared of my dog. And they got in the habit of, like, messing with my dog to scare the dog away. And then a little while after that, the dog bit somebody. In, like a family member, and we had to get the dog out. And there were shots at night, and there were things at the local school, and I tried to go over there and help out where I didn't understand why they weren't eager to do exactly what I told them they needed to do, to get their reading scores up, for instance. And when bad things happened at night, sometimes the police came, and sometimes they didn't. And I didn't exactly understand why my neighbors weren't so happy to call the police or why they thought I probably shouldn't call the police sometimes. Mostly, I didn't understand why I couldn't really develop deeper friendships. When I really started to think it through, especially in retrospect, my problem was I wasn't happy that the people I was living in their culture and I expected them to think and behave like me. And I secretly thought if they did, if they had the same sorts of values and they practiced the same sorts of behaviors that I did, the whole world would be a better place. Didn't they see that? One of the kids on, uh, on our basketball team who we loved and we worked with and we helped get better at basketball and uh, stole my kid's bike. Came in the backyard and stole the bike. I, we thought we had a good relationship with Pierre. He wasn't French, actually. but This is Marty Merriweather. I don't know if you, you know Marty. So um, what saved us, in a sense, what helped us, in a sense, is a stretch of what I think the Bible calls a man of peace. Do you know that term from the Gospels? Like someone in the community who says, hey, let me take you under my arm and try to explain to you why you're an idiot 
in the cultural mistakes that you're making and your misunderstandings and your pride. And let me also explain to you the decades of history here with these institutions and these practices that you don't get and you don't understand. And let me do it without hating you. Let me, let me be kind to you and do that. And so Marty was one of several people that, expo- that took Laurie and I under their wing and like helped us translate what was going on around us and helped us understand why, at least to some degree, the world was different than we thought it was. Does that make sense? Okay. Somebody must have done that for Hudson Taylor and, and William Carey. and Somebody must have done that at some point in the cross-cultural experiences of the people we're talking about. Right. Y'all know this bit? Have you seen this before? If you haven't seen it, raise your hand. Okay, this is an optical illusion. This is called the young woman, old woman optical illusion. And the thing about this is if you look at it one way, you see a young woman, and if you look at it another way, you see an old woman in the drawing. And some of you who know it have figured out how to flip back and forth in your brain, old woman, young woman. What is actually impossible to do is to see at the same time both the old woman and the young woman. If you accomplish that, you can come and lie to me about it, but uh, (laughs) I've tried. So some people, when they look at this intuitively, like, who sees first a young woman? Okay? And who sees first an old woman? Okay? And who can't see the other? Is there anybody who, you can't see the other, you can't see the other? Yeah? It's okay. It's okay. Be proud. I only see the young woman. Okay. So, just for the purposes, before you, so you don't lose your mind, um, if you're looking at the old woman, this is the old woman's nose and her mouth and her chin. You see the chin of the old woman and her mouth, and that's her nose. And that's the little line of her nary, if that makes sense to you. If you can't see it, I'm sorry, we can, later on we can work on it, okay? <laughs> if you can't see the young woman, she is turned in profile away from you, and you can just see her eyelash and her nose, and this is her jawline here. And this is her lovely neck, and that's a choker. Okay? So, maybe you can, maybe you can't. This is, this is my analogy. I want you to try to follow this. Like, white upper-class doctor guy lives in an African-American community and looks around him, and he sees young woman. Now, 16 years later, sometimes he can see old woman. People have helped him to do that. He sees the world in a completely different way. The people who can only see the young woman are still going, it's obviously a young woman. It is a young woman. I see it with my own eyes. Don't tell me that's an old woman because it's a young woman. I can see it. I trust my eyes and my interpretation of it. And if you never get to the point where you see the, the old woman, that's where you're stuck. Okay? Where you might have to land, Christian people is between, where you can sometimes see the young woman and sometimes see the old woman. You can sometimes see the cultural thing that's true and right about your own culture and also see the thing that's beautiful and true and different about the other culture. And you might have to switch back and forth. And you're probably never going to really see them both and really understand them both. Because the sick thing about this missionary business is you slowly lose your own culture if you're doing it right, but you never fully gain the new culture that you're immersing yourself in because you can't. But again, this is, this is our lot. This is what we're supposed to do. Isn't it? As aliens and strangers. Right. So, I don't want to talk about black, on, black Lives Matter or guns or uh, public education because I could literally argue both sides of the argument for you persuasively and with conviction because I'm schizophrenic. But if you can't see both sides, that's a problem. Because you're going to be angry and proud and certain that you're seeing things right and the other person can't see it. And it might be that you're wrong about that. Okay. So the number two reason you should consider cross-cultural living is like Mama Dot, it might show you unpleasant truths about yourself and your people. Isn't that fun? Number three, reason you should consider cross-cultural living now. The gospel and the church are our only hopes for reconciliation. 
What do I mean by that? I mean that when I walk into the doctor's lounge at the hospital I work at, depending on who was there last, I'm either going to be watching Fox News or CNN. And there might be a knife fight among the surgeons about which one it's going to be. (laughs) The surgeons want Fox News, by the way. (laughs) We're divided along political lines, and we're subdividing even along cultural lines and identity lines. It's bad. Somebody really smart once said, a nation divided itself against itself cannot stand. And that's, that's where we are. And the truth of the gospel is more powerful than politics or culture or identity. In fact, again, members of Christ's church are members of something that stands above all nations, all political systems, all economic systems. Do you like democracy and market capitalism? Okay. But it's not more important than Jesus and the kingdom of God. I've made a suggestion multiple times in multiple settings, seriously, and it's never been taken up. But I'm going to make it again. Let's all get together, Christian people, and put our names in a hat and pull out, and half of us become Democrats and half of us become Republicans. And then go try to influence the party for Jesus and the kingdom. Because the truth is, there are things that are kingdom-like in both parties and things that are horrendous regarding the kingdom in both parties. Our strategy has been to align ourselves with a single party. How's that working for us? How's it working for the next generation of younger people who are watching us do that? But if you're going to mend this divide, you've got to know people who are different than you. You have to show them that you care about them, and you have to try to understand their point of view and their world. This has been our approach. We're going to get our country back for Jesus. With all due respect, I'm not sure how much Jesus cares about America. He cares about his glory. He cares about the kingdom of Jesus spreading to all nations. I love America. But I love the kingdom. That's our first commitment. This is 405. This is when um, Alaric and the Goths routed, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Conquered Rome. Sacked it. It's a fun term. Let's go sack Rome. This, if you can imagine this event happened after Christianity had finally been legitimized by Constantine the Emperor in the 4th century, like 325 is, is when a Christian emperor made Christianity basically the official religion of the Roman Empire rather than the object of persecution, which it had been for on and off for two centuries before that, three centuries before that. And what everybody thought was going to happen is that the Church of Jesus and the Empire of Rome was going to take the gospel to the world, and that would be the end of it, because Rome and the Church together would go conquer everyone, and everyone would be Christian, and then Jesus would come back. And that really went bad when Alaric came and sacked Rome, when these Germanic tribes conquered the Romans. And the Christian church said, it's over, how can this be? Like, the church isn't going to last, the church can't lose, we just lost. What was Augustine's answer to that, John? City of God, which you should listen to on Audible. He said what I just said to you a little while ago, like, no, 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 silly people. Rome is not the kingdom of Jesus. America is not the kingdom of Jesus. Southern culture or whatever culture you love is not the kingdom of Jesus. It's above all those things. It never loses. It goes on forward forever. And it sheds all of that other stuff. It takes captive, to use Pauline language, all of those pretensions and brings it in subjection to Jesus. That's what the kingdom does. So this is the anti-cross-cultural living strategy, to be honest with you. It started when Stephen got stoned in Acts 6 or 7, because that made the Jerusalem church go out in persecution as missionaries. After this happened, the Germanic tribes didn't overrun Christianity. Christianity turned the Goths into Lutherans, basically. And the same thing happened with the Scandinavian Vikings. They conquered nice Christian people and took nice Christian wives back to their country and became Christians. 
They became Christianized. They were Christianized through a cross, uh, unpleasant cross-cultural decision, right? Forced upon the Christian people. We're going to do better in weakness. And this is, again, Pauline language. This is the discussion about his thorn in the flesh, that he wanted to go away. But my argument to us is, like, if we go into these cultures, they're not going to come to us. If they do, we're going to make them play by our rules. Like, we need to go in weakness and humility instead of, this is our country and we're going to take it back. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may be rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Willingly surrendering some of your cultural assumptions is an act of humility and weakness. It's a win-by-losing strategy. All right. Reason number three why you should consider cross-cultural living. The gospel and the humble church are the only hopes for reconciliation. This one's going to be the hardest sell of all. Number four. Reason you, right now, especially if you're younger. I was 38 years old when I moved into the neighborhood I live in now. You were 28. John David, how old were you? Yeah. I wish I was that medical student who had the sense to do it when I was 20-something. But you should do it to protect your family. Not a typo. This woodcutting is from a story in the Old Testament. Do you all recognize the story? Somebody tell me what the story is. So Nathan... So Nathan knows this because I'm stealing this from him. I heard him preach this once. Like, so tell us the story. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. You got the mic, seriously. Okay. <laughs> All right, I have the mic. You, sh- you want the mic? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the Israelites have lived for 400 years in captivity, and by his mighty hand and outstretched arm and great victory over the gods of Egypt through Moses and Aaron, God delivers the nation of Israel, and they wander for 40 years, and they fail, and they in every way disappoint the Lord. But finally the time comes, actually this is early in the story, because the 40 years follows the story, they send out spies, 12 spies, one from every tribe into the promised land across the Jordan to spy out the land and see it. And they come back with this amazing fruit, it's a beautiful, prosperous land, it's got amazing uh, it is, it's not a desert where we've been living for 40 years. Look at these grapes. They're gigantic. And Caleb, one of the 12 spies, is enthusiastic. We should go now. The Lord will give it into our hands. But 10 of the other spies gave a bad report. So what was their report? They're giants. We are insects compared to them. We're grasshoppers. What will happen? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So the reason I'm crediting Nathan with this is because I'm sure he wasn't the first person to think of it, but he pointed out, like, these people mistakenly think that the best thing to do is protect their wives and children when the Lord himself is with them and has directed them in. And in reality, it's those wives and children, at least the children, who eventually enter the promised land and get the blessings of it. And their fear, their lack of faith, is what caused harm to them. They wandered for 40 years and died. So, when most American Christian people, at least evangelicals, I'm putting myself in that category, think about inner city or urban places, or maybe it's a rural place that's poor and difficult, like, our instinct is to do what? To, To get away, right? So this is a rational thought, isn't it? Sort of. Okay, so we do these things here that make all kinds of sense. We create neighborhoods that are safe. Because after all, don't we want our families to be safe? We isolate ourselves. Maybe there's not a gate in your community, but in my city, in the two cities I've lived in, New Orleans and in Memphis, there is 
a deliberate effort to separate into safe places away from the, the bad places. And we extend that. We plant churches. Literally, if we go to seminary and we learn how to plant churches, we're taught to go to the population places next where the, where the we don't say it, but like the moneyed good people are going to be. It might be that the place five years ago was the place to go and build a church. Five years from now is not going to be, but we're going to go to a place where there's lots of people and they're going to put things like Panera and Starbucks and whatever else you build in those places. All right, and we create schools. This is a school in my city. There was a bunch of them that were created in the 1970s when school desegregation happened and so we have Christian schools, and they're amazing. Really, honestly, this one's is nicer, nicer than the university I went to. It costs fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year to educate your kids there. Maybe it's not the same in your city, but Christian people isolate themselves in communities, and they put their churches in places that are safe, and they even put their kids together in places that are not accessible to other people to actual regular poor people. The motive is good, or rational at least. But it is unknowingly contributing to more harm to our neighbors. Because when we remove ourselves and our resources and our interests, and we protect ourselves to the exclusion of our neighbors... We do harm to our neighbors. And I've referenced it earlier. Like, there have always been young kids when they go to college who leave their Christian parents' faith for a time. The happy message for a long time has been, yeah, but once when they want to get married and they have kids, they go back to the church. But that's honestly not happening like it used to. Like, huge numbers of young people who are abandoning Christianity. Most of us know people, if not in our family and other families, where that's the case. um, For those people used to thinking in scientific terms, the N on this study that I'm about to propose to you is one. And it's not even a completed study. But I do have seven children. And um, five of them are adults, basically, now 20 years old or older. And they're all Christian people. They really believe the gospel. They, um, two of them, despite what I just said, are, are about to graduate from law school, so they're lawyers. So there is unconfessed sin in my life at some place. But, <laughs> but they're, one's going to be a criminal defense lawyer, and the other is going to be an immigration lawyer. And um, last weekend was my nine-year-old's birthday, and we got a phone call from her friends who live in the Horn of Africa because my kids think it's normal with all these folks who moved into our neighborhood. They think it's normal to talk to their friends who are missionaries to, to a people in the Horn of Africa. And even though our neighborhood, you would say, like, how would you dare put your kids in a failing school and be in that possibly dangerous thing? Like, what happened in that dysfunctional community was this highly functional Christian community was created and lots of people who were younger and cooler than mom and dad moved in with us, including single women. And my daughters know women who live around the globe and in other settings. And, like, they were part of an authentic Christian community. I think, in part, that's why, by God's grace, my kids are committed to the Christian faith still. Because they saw a functioning, loving Failing in many respects, but authentic Christian community of people who love their neighbors. I think you don't realize, we don't realize the risks we put our kids into when we protect them. When we protect them. And the values that they learn in that setting. Passive and active values that they get in those settings. This may be an unfair accusation, but... Those schools that I talked about that started in the 1970s, we've now had 40 years, 50 years of those schools putting out students, graduating students. And I'll be honest with you, I don't see those schools producing the statesmen and the, and the titans and the philosophers and the Christian giants that you would think should happen if you have Christian schools for that long. 
I see a lot of Ole Miss fans. It's a cultural joke, sorry. People who love uh, Southern culture and, and SEC football and comfort and One reason you should think about incarnational living is to protect your family. All right, lastly, five, you should do it if you're going to prepare for future cross-cultural ministry. And this, this is the argument that we've been making for a long time, but um, the simple formulation is this. like, If you've got a group of people who are willing to move into a neighborhood that is, is made up of people different from themselves, and have to learn another culture. If you have people who are willing to maybe hear gunshots at night or have strangers knock on their doors, um, a group of people who have to live with limited resources in some sense, a group of people who have to reach into their Christian community for support, a group of people who are willing to have their mom and dad a little unhappy with the choices that they're making along these lines. Like, Those are all the very same skills and experiences that you will need to go live cross-culturally overseas. It's just like two sides of the same coin. And in fact, in our community, like the two sides are always interacting. The people who live in the underserved community where we are and the missionaries who we've sent overseas come back and forth and interact. Like it's the same. It's the body that we are. This is actually from a business model, um, so don't read the details too much. But the principle is true. Like, if you stay where you are comfortable, you are not going to grow. If you have a posture of humility before the Lord, which we must, if you are repeatedly surrendering your heart, mind, soul, and strength to Jesus and pleading with the Holy Spirit to lead you, he won't leave you in a comfortable place. The reason we protect ourselves is we want to be safe and we want to be comfortable. We don't want to face things that fear that cause us fear. Again, a, a hardly risky thing to say, but like, if you think that you can live in a protected little Christian bubble and then be successful cross-culturally elsewhere you're going to have a real steep learning curve. Maybe an unclimbable learning curve. Most of those missionaries that I described to you, if you read the missionary biographies, they first spent time, Amy Carmichael, for instance, spent time working among the poor in Ireland. Um, People who later became successful cross-culturally overseas were cross-culturally working among marginalized people in their own culture before they went. Almost all of them. Okay, um, we have a few minutes, and so we could do lots of things. Questions are appropriate, and there are other, again, there are other people in this audience who probably have better ways of answering some of your questions if you have them. Um, so, questions, please. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I have a bunch of quick answers to that, and then others can answer it too. So, first of all, I was at first trying to negotiate with my wife to make this happen. Okay, and um, so that had part of the that's part of what drove me. We had five children. I had you know the the choice we made in the house was part of the deal. I didn't have as much cultural awareness then as I do now. I might do it. I might enter the community a little differently this time, but. Nathan's right. Like, I had been working as a doctor in that neighborhood for years, and people knew that Dr. Rick is a doctor. And so uh, we just had Halloween, and uh, if you ask my wife and I, we think we live in a, for, 
for our peer group and the fact that I'm a physician and all that, like we live in what I think is a relatively modest house, but to our neighbors, when they're ringing our doorbell, we, were go- we told everybody we're going to go to the mansion first. <laughs> so um, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't San Francis it. Maybe I should have. If you know what I mean by that, like strip down naked and move into in a pup tent in the corner. But, uh, yeah. And, again, I'm just describing my experiences. But, yes, ma'am. I got ticketed for my Kia Soul in the doctor's parking lot, you know, so it works the other way too, right? Exactly, yeah. Yes? Did you walk through the same decisions with all your children in their educational process as you were living there, or did you make some different decisions depending on us? Yeah, so we, um, I'm sure we didn't come up with this. We said every kid every year you reassess um, and you look at the teacher they got. And so sometimes we, at one point we homeschooled for one year for one of our kids. Um, we, depending on the teachers, we had to boost up some homeschool support, uh, just uh, some extra stuff. Yeah, and so they all, they all have made it through. Um, and they, and again, this is sort of compromise. Like they go to a Technically, under way underperforming, bottom 10% in the state of Tennessee school through fifth grade, and then they we, they stay in a public school, but they go to a magnet public school where, in the end, they're able to take AP courses and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Would you say that, like, I mean, I guess kind of the premise of this is that you moved into this neighborhood to kind of make an impact um, for you, specifically, maybe to get to the community better for your hospital. Um, would you say, like, just being there was a ministry, or did you guys have, like, a particular intentional outreach into your community, or is it just, like, you're facing the neighborhood, you get to know your neighbors around you, um, and just by that the presence? Yeah. What was your, I guess, what was your approach for, like, turning it into, like, missional living instead of just, like, because I could see there, I could see there being, like, people, like, oh, I'm just going to go move into a, a, like, a lower-income neighborhood, and if they don't change anything with how they live, like... As far as how they know their neighbors, is it really making a difference, or are they just doing something to Yeah, so I hope everybody heard that, and I can't repeat that for the tape. But I mean, that's a huge question, and um, so um, I, I think this risk exists overseas as well, like the traditional missionary compound where missionaries all live together, and they don't necessarily. Okay, so we. Planted churches. We reach out to our neighbors. We, we've had um, object, we prayer, we've done prayer walking. Have we succeeded after 17 years and having large numbers of the indigenous people of our communities become the leaders of our church? No, we haven't. Are some of those people in our churches? Yes, but it's it's not been. It wasn't the carry out on the shoulders. It's and still isn't. Um, and that's always a temptation to. To do that. In our neighborhood now, my side, there's a train track that divides Binghampton too, so Nathan lives on the tougher side now. Um, it's my side is is really on the it's gentrifying. So it's changing. I mean it took sixteen years and I don't know that we did it. It's just a plum neighborhood near the center of city and people are beginning to come in and buy the properties and speculate and doing some things to try to counteract that, but we're not gonna be able to win that fight. Like, there are people, like, there is a real temptation just to move in to own a house and to continue about your life and to feel like you're doing, contributing in some way. I think the real ministry comes from these intentional relationships, having people in the community, in your home, and really, and, and you're the one who's changing as much as anything and coming to new understandings of the culture. And yes, ma'am. Um, I put one of my, I say I, my wife, who is the sports development member of our, our family, put one of my sons on to Marty's AAU, or his, uh, his basketball team. And, and the, part of what we've tried to do is to put our 
kids and under the authority of African-American leaders in different times and places, and that was how we met Marty in the first place. Yes, sir. Anybody else want to feel that one? They're always uncomfortable, and maybe that's not bad. I'm just saying, people in the church really don't. I mean, we've had people, you know, I found out a year later, you know, when we just start trying to emphasize short term missions, they get ticked off and they leave the church. And our church is actually, for upper northeast Tennessee, is a very diverse community. We've got people from all different socioeconomic spectrums, racial spectrums, and but with the church by and large in the United States, it's, it seems very there's just a strong reaction against the very principles you're talking about. And I'm just my question is why? So there was this garden. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- this is a prophetic message, and we're, this prophets call the church back to what we. Th- I mean, that's the church needs prophets, and we don't usually stomach them well. And if you read your Bible, they usually end up at the bottom of a well or something like that. And so, but the, it, it is the reality. It is the reality. I was just going to say, I, I feel like oftentimes it's easy for us to idealize um, and promote things, but when, like what you're saying, when it comes down to like when the rubber hits the road thinking about making those sacrifices yourself that um, just goes against our own, like, what we see as, like, self-preservation, I think. And so, I mean, I know just personally, like, it's easy to think, oh, man, I should do this, that'd be great. But then when it comes to the step of actually doing it, there's always ways to justify maybe why I don't have to do it or why it's not me but someone else that needs to do it. And I think that, like, the actual decision to do it um, it's easier to just walk away or distance yourself from that because of some justification of why that's the best thing than actually like face the, the action of all Well said. Um, this is another big question. I'm ready for it. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk on like how you feel like you know your king more because of the decisions that you made where you have to be number seven. How is it I know my king more because of the decisions I've made? Yeah. So um, I wasn't kidding earlier. I wish that I had done this when I was younger. I feel like um, by taking calculated risks of obedience and taking steps of faith that the Lord has revealed himself more to me and has allowed that's allowed me to be more fruitful, and I wish I was even more fruitful than I was, and I'm sorry that I got such a late start. Um, I think when you do things like this, um, and you're in the grinder, you're out of the comfort zone, like that's when the Holy Spirit teaches you, that's when the Bible comes alive for you, that's when you meet other Christians who are not, um, who are with you, and you, you have this camaraderie of other believers who have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Like it just, I, the value of it to myself and my marriage and my kids is overwhelmingly positive. Um, and, Surely the greatest thing of, of anything in life is to know the Lord better. So I, ju- I just think it's happened. Maybe it should be like, you want to know God better. That's point six or whatever. Yeah. You can give the talk next year. Yeah. What, what would you say to the, the idea of, um, I know I've heard this reference to missions, if you're not, like you're saying, if you're not able to live missionally now, or I've heard it said, like, if you're not able to live missionally now, then if you move overseas, it's not like that, so it's going to be easier. Um, so for people considering living cross-culturally, I mean, I know, this is personally speaking, it's hard for me to, to find the energy and time to go and meet my neighbors, and I live in, like, a middle-class neighborhood. Um, do you, like, would you say for people that are in my situation where I don't really even, I don't, like, we know our neighbors somewhat, but it's not like we have a close-knit community. Like, do you think it would be better for people to 
get good at networking and meeting your neighbors first where you are, or does it help to just remove that comfort zone and kind of like, like, I don't know. Like, if I'm thinking, okay, I want to move into a more, like, cross-cultural community, is that where I should start, or should I start by just... So I heard this really smart guy just a few minutes ago say, like, you can come up with all these rationalizations why you shouldn't do it. And one of them is like, well, I'm not doing it now, so I won't do it then. I'll just be a waste of time. Or it's going to gentrify anyway. Or I'm not good at evangelism. Or I'm really busy right now, and I'll do it later. Like, those are all, you said it. Like, those are all things that you could weigh over. I don't know, um, I don't know if that's true. Uh, this thing about, like, if you're not a mission, missional in America, you won't be a missional overseas. I mean, it's probably a truism. But I don't know if that's absolutely true, but I just don't think it should be a barrier to considering the possibility, if that makes sense. Uh, my wife and I uh, live on a farm in, in Wisconsin, and she's a PA at a small farming community clinic. And so we did a jail ministry for 15, 20 years. And, and uh, some of the mothers would come to us and say, would you take care of my kids? Some of the women in prison would say that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we pray about it, and uh, and it was really, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, we had kids in the home. For instance, we had um, a sexual offender, a very young one, live with us for two and a half years. Um, but there are opportunities. You don't have to go uh, in a large urban area. Yes. Yeah, so this this was a point I tried to make earlier. Like, I'm just describing my own cultural milieu. Like, there's other places and other groups and other people and nationalities and refugees and Spanish speakers and cows in Wisconsin. And, you know, there's... Yeah. Okay, we're happy to talk more. It's, at, it's 10 after. Thank you for, for coming and uh, for participating. Thank you very much. Yeah.